Please pray with me. And Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy would be upon us. Father, even though that we face so many setbacks and so many challenges, you are faithful in ensuring that your word is made available to your people. And we thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of COVID-19, your word has been faithfully been preached. And we thank you that the accessibility of it has been able to reach to all of the saints at NCF and even beyond. And so, Lord, we ask once again that you will do that work of disseminating your word to where your people are at, so that no matter where they are and what they are struggling with, that we will all be lifted up into the wonderful countenance of our great God. Lord, would you strengthen us now and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, as far back as I can remember, I've always been a picky eater. And no, it's not because I'm a snobby eater or I have a sophisticated palate. No, it's actually because of something quite tragic, something quite serious. You see, I was born with a very, very weak stomach. You see, unlike so many of you foodies out there, I can't really indulge in all the flavorful, diverse foods that are among us. You give me anything too sweet, anything too spicy, anything too raw, anything too rich, and I'm in big, big trouble. Case in point, uh, in the first year of our marriage, Sarah's father, my brand new father-in-law, wanted to welcome me into the family. And so what did he do? He took me out to dinner. And because this was the first meal he would ever pay for, I felt especially obligated to eat as much as I could. But of course, I would end up having to pay for that in the form of a rude awakening at 2 a.m. where a tremendous pain in my chest woke me up to where I had no choice but to finally shake my brand new wife, Sarah. Sarah, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And it was at that moment that I realized that a minor heartburn incident felt like a massive heart attack. It was crazy. It was quite overwhelming. You know, not being a foodie is really my plight in life, especially here living in New York City and especially being married to my wife as well as the father of my kids and even your pastor because my wife, my children, even some of you have kind of rubbed it in my face of how I can't enjoy food like all of you can. But you know what? Over the years and after countless abuse of being scrutinized and made fun of, of my lack of being able to eat like all of you, I've been able to come up with an able defense with a very short pithy statement that goes like this. Hey, I don't live to eat. I eat to live. I love that statement because it makes me come across as being so holy, so self-controlled, so godly. Meanwhile, making all of you look heathenistic, so uncontrollable, and even foolish. But you know what? The Bible would actually say that I am the fool to think that way with regard to food because of the topic that we're looking at today. And that is the topic of the Lord's Supper. We're continuing our sermon series entitled The Way We Worship. And the whole point of this series is to understand why we do what we do, the way we do it. In the context of the church gathered together on the Lord's Day to worship our great God. And today, as I said a moment ago, we're going to be taking a look of the sacrament known as the Lord's Supper. And just like the sacrament or ordinance of baptism, so many Christians today don't really understand the significance or the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And as a result, so many Christians endanger themselves of minimizing the impact that God intended for us to have as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And so, to not allow that to happen, I want to share with you from God's Word the significance of what the Lord's Supper is. And to do that, three things I want to share with you today. Three points. First, we're going to talk about the meaning of the Supper. 
then we're going to talk about the danger of the supper, and then we're going to end it with the dissatisfaction of the supper, the meaning of the supper, the danger of the supper, and finally the dissatisfaction of the supper. Let's begin with the first point, the meaning of the supper. Now, before we jump into the text, first let me set the stage by giving you some crucial background information. The events that are recorded in our passage happen on the night that Jesus was betrayed, later falsely arrested, and also therefore later condemned to die the next day by crucifixion. So what that tells us is the evening of these events in our passage happened to be the last night of Jesus's life on earth. And not only so was it the last night of Jesus' earth, that means the meal that he's eating with his disciples in our passage was his also final meal on earth. Now here's where things get interesting. When you look at what it says in verse 17, you come to discover that this first night happens to be the first night of the Jewish festival known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And for those of you who've attended Sunday school, read your Bible, you may not recognize that Jewish celebration, but you may if I told you its more popular name, and that is the Passover, the Jewish Passover. And for those of you watching who are investigating Christianity, you don't know much about the Bible, you might not know what the Jewish Passover is. So let me give you a quick synopsis of what's going on here. Okay? If you ever read the book of Exodus, which is a book in the Old Testament, there you come across the famous story of the prophet Moses sent by God to set God's people free from slavery under the bondage of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. In fact, if you ever watch the classic Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, or the Disney adaptation, The Prince of Egypt, you may recognize the famous dialogue that occurs between Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses says something to the effect of, Pharaoh, let my people go. To which Pharaoh responds, no, right? And back and forth they go, seemingly going nowhere. And so what does God do to get the ball rolling? He decides to send 10 plagues, <coughs> excuse me, against the nation of Egypt. At first, Pharaoh, being the proud man that he is, he's not much impressed and therefore intimidated to do anything different. But then as each successive plague comes upon him and his nation, Egypt, the worse they get to where at some point, midway through the various plagues, Pharaoh tells Moses, okay, look, Moses, if you pray to your God and you tell your God to stop these plagues, I will promise to release your people. I will set the Jews free so they can worship their God. But here's the thing. This Pharaoh is a tricky politician because the moment where God releases the plague upon Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he changes his tune and he says, no, Pharaoh, I'm sorry. The Jews are going to stay as my slave. I will not let your people go. And on and on this goes until at last God feels that he has no choice but to finally send the 10th and most detrimental plague, the plague that finally causes Pharaoh to humble himself and to do the right thing of letting God's people go. And you know what that plague was? It was taking of the life of the firstborn sons of Egypt. You see, God had no choice but to really get Pharaoh to a point where he would finally humble himself. And that's exactly what God did. God sent his angel of death to go into the land of Egypt, and he did take the life of all the firstborn, excuse me, firstborn sons of Egypt. But to ensure that the angel of death wouldn't take any of the firstborn sons of Israel, of the Jews, he commanded his people to take an unblemished lamb, to sacrifice it, and to smear the blood of the lamb on the outside doorpost of their homes. Why? So when the angel of death would go through the land of Egypt, he would see the blood-stained doorpost, and he would pass over, sparing the lives of all those who are inside that home. Hence, we get the name Passover. And to this day, 
Jewish people everywhere celebrate this Passover, how? By eating a lamb and eating tons of unleavened bread. Hence, we get the other name for this celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, all of this background information is so important for us to understand something because it's no coincidence that Jesus decided to institute and to create the very first Lord's Supper to coincide with the Passover because Jesus is trying to make a connection between these two events. And though he's not super clear in our passage what that connection is, he is more clear in other parts of Scripture, such as John chapter 6, where starting in verse 54, Jesus says this about himself in relation to his followers. Listen to what he says there. He says, quote, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now, when many of Jesus' followers initially heard these words, they had no idea what to do with it. And as a result, many of Jesus' followers at that time left him. They stopped following him. And the ones that did remain, the original 12 disciples, they too didn't know what to do with these words of Jesus. That is until now, when it came to our passage. Because it was at this dinner table, as Jesus was using the Passover as a background to institute the Lord's Supper, that they finally understood what he was trying to teach them here in John chapter 6. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching all of us that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. This is why, by the way, sometimes the New Testament will refer to Jesus Christ as what? The Lamb of God. Because his death on the cross functions in the same way as the sacrifice of the Lamb of the original Passover did for the Jews. Okay? In other words, it is through the blood of Jesus that God's wrath and God's judgment passes over those who would hide behind the blood-stained wooden cross just as the Jews hid behind the blood-stained wooden doorpost to be spared from the wrath of God. But here's the thing. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that his Passover is far better than the original Passover because unlike the blood of the Lamb in the Old Testament, which merely spared a person to have a continuous earthly life, Jesus' blood actually provides eternal life, life forever fellowship with God. What is it? That is the message of the gospel, and that is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. See? And what that tells us is every time you, Christian, partake of the Lord's Supper where you're eating the bread and you're drinking the wine, you are proclaiming through that act that you have full confidence, you have full faith in the power of Jesus' blood. In other words, every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming that Jesus' blood is so powerful, it is so precious, it is so pure that it can undermine all of your issues, all of your imperfections, all of your immorality, thereby sparing you from death and instead grant you eternal life. Or if I could put it more simply, every time you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming that Jesus is the source of your life. Jesus is your all in all. He is the source of your life. And this is something that Jesus really wants to make sure that all of his followers comprehend, which is why in Luke's version of this same story that we're reading in our passage, Jesus adds the command, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants to make sure that we, his followers, understand that every time we partake of the supper, we are proclaiming to ourselves, to the world, and especially to God, Jesus, you are the source of my life. And the question is, why does Jesus want that so much? Why is that so important to him? Well, as we'll see in just a moment, 
It's when we do not remember that Jesus is the source of life. It's when we forget that Jesus is the source of life that we fall into very, very bad danger. Bad danger? Yeah, bad danger. And to explain, let me go to my next point, the danger of the supper. Starting in verse 21, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you're familiar with our passage, you'll know that Jesus is talking about Judas Iscariot, the infamous disciple who would end up betraying Jesus, okay? And here's the thing, Jesus knew that his disciple Judas was going to betray him even before Judas decided to do it. And because Jesus knew this, he says this about Judas in front of Judas, as well as in front of the other disciples. In verse 24, Jesus says this, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Huh. Now, when you first read these words of Christ, you can't help but to feel as if Jesus is threatening Judas, as if Jesus has a spirit of rejection, a spirit of hatred, a spirit of animosity towards Judas by saying these words. But if that's what you're thinking, you could not be more wrong, okay? And let me tell you why. Notice that Jesus says what he does in verse 24 before he gives out the bread and the wine, before he starts giving out the Lord's Supper, okay? You see, that is such a significant thing. Because if the meaning of the supper is that Jesus, you are the source of my life, that also means nothing and no one else is the source of your life. Not your money, not your career, not your sexuality, not your fame and fortune, not your status, right? but Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? But for Judas, that wasn't the case, was it? Because in his mind, Jesus was not the source of life. Something else was. And do you know what it was? It was money, money, specifically the 30 pieces of silver that were promised to him if he actually went through and betrayed Jesus. And again, Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this. He knew that the thing that drove and motivate and inspired Judas wasn't Jesus. It was money. And yet Judas was going to go ahead and partake of this supper, proclaiming Jesus is his all in all. Jesus is the source of his life when in fact he isn't. And here we come to find what makes Judas's sin so horrendous. Because by partaking in this supper, Judas is essentially communicating to Jesus in the most disgraceful, deceptive way. Something that warrants the condemnation of God. By partaking of this supper the way that he did, Judas was inviting the wrath of God to come upon him. And there is nothing more dangerous than to invite God's wrath like that. Now, some of you are hearing all this, and you're probably thinking to yourself, Phew, you know, I'm glad I'm not Judas. I'm glad I'll never be in a situation like Judas was at that moment, thereby preventing me of ever ending up like Judas. I'm so glad that I don't have the worry about of possibly turning out like Judas did. Thank God. Not so fast. You know, one of the most scariest passages in the scripture is the one that's recorded there in Revelation chapter 3. Because in that passage, Jesus tells us the kinds of people that he despises. Despises. In fact, the way he communicates how much he despises these kinds of people is that he uses an interesting cultural euphemism that goes like this. I will spit such people out of my mouth. Now you hear that and you're like, 
what, what does that even mean? But New Testament scholars tell us that that euphemism simply expresses severe judgment that takes on the same kind of flavor of judgment that Jesus is telling of Judas in verse 24 of our passage. Now, again, many of you hear this and you're thinking, phew, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me. And the reason you think that way is because you assume that the types of people that Jesus despises are the bottom of the barrel types of people. You know, the, the serial killers, the, 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 the child rapists, you know, the pedophiles, you know, people who are just really gruesome, disgusting people. But to your shocking surprise, when you read Revelation chapter 3, those are not the types of people that Jesus rejects and judges. You know the people that he spits out of his mouth? lukewarm people, specifically lukewarm Christians. Now, if you have no idea what I mean by lukewarm Christian, if you're not really clear on what that means, consider this quote from Pastor Francis Chan. I think he gives a powerful and clear exposition of what it means to be a lukewarm person. Take a listen to what he says. Quote, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sins. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sins. They don't generally hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old simple one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume that such action is for, quote, extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. They do not want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they are nowhere as horrible as the guy down the street. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, their money, and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It is what is expected of them, what they believe, quote, good Christians do, so they go. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, and next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life to come. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be, quote, good enough without requiring too much of them. These are the characteristics of lukewarm people. And Christian, let me ask you, as I read these descriptions, did any of them describe you? Did all of them? If they do, then maybe, just maybe, your initial sigh of relief is a little bit too premature. You see, when most people read this warning Jesus gives Judas in verse 24, they just assume that it's an exclusive warning that's tailor-made for Judas and Judas alone, as if it could never apply to any other person. But that is clearly not the case because you see the same kind of warnings being given by other spiritual leaders to other people in the church. Case in point, if you read what Paul says to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 11, you come to find a similar sounding warning. Take a listen to what he says starting in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul is warning the Christians in Corinth the same kind of warning that Jesus gave Judas in our passage of verse 24. And in a nutshell, what Paul is basically telling Christians there is, 
Be careful how you approach the supper of Jesus. Be careful how you approach the table of the Lord. Make sure that in your heart of hearts, you really understand the meaning of the supper, that in your heart of hearts, Jesus is the source of your life. He is the joy of your life. He is the meaning of your life. He is the hope of your life. He is the center of your life, that Jesus really is your all in all. Because if he is not, due to money being the source of your life, due to career being the source of life, due to your sexuality as the source of your life, due to your finances as the source of your life, and yet you still partake, you are essentially treating Jesus no differently than the way Judas treated Jesus. And as a result, you are inviting God to pour his judgment upon you. You know, this is why, by the way, Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper at NCF, I do something known as the fencing of the table. The fencing of the table. And what that basically means is before anybody comes up to partake of the bread and the wine, I give out a warning to all the people present to say, make sure you really understand the meaning of the supper, that you really understand, okay? that Jesus is the source of your life, and you really mean it. And practically what that means is if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't come up and partake of the elements. Because by doing so, you're claiming Jesus is your Savior, and you're not even sure if you believe. Don't do that. Okay? And if you are a Christian, but you're living in unrestrained, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, you shouldn't be coming up either as well. Because by doing so, you are proclaiming through your ashes that Jesus is the source of your life. He's the all in all of your life, when in fact he is not. And again, by doing that, you are behaving no differently than Judas. And again, you are inviting God's judgment to come upon you. And that is the last thing that Jesus wants for anybody, but especially Christians. Listen, Jesus didn't come to expose you to his judgment. He came to save you from his judgment. That's why he gives out this kind of warning to us through the pastor proceeding of the Lord's table. And guess what? It's not just you that Jesus loves, but it was also Judas. You see, again, many people assume that the warning Jesus gave Judas in verse 24 was a warning driven by hatred and rejection and animosity. But no, it wasn't. By giving this warning in verse 24 before Judas actually partook of the supper, Jesus is lovingly warning Judas to not allow himself to do his own harm by inviting the judgment of God. And Christian, that's how you should perceive the fencing of the table. When you know that you're living a lukewarm lifestyle, when you know you're compromising your faith, okay, and you hear the pastor, whether it be myself, Pastor Charles, or any other pastor that you sit under, fencing the table, you should not interpret that as God's hatred of you, his, his rejection of you, his threatening of you, but just the opposite. It's God's incredible love for you to where he does not want you to put yourself in a situation where you are essentially lying to him and being dishonest with yourself you see now it's at this point some of you maybe all of you are kind of freaking out because as you hear this sermon you're concluding that the only way that you can partake of the lord's supper is if there is no trace of lukewarmness in you okay but if that's what you're thinking, let me tell you right now, that is not the case. Okay, because if that was the case, no one could partake of the Lord's Supper, including yours truly. Okay, Jesus is not saying that in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, you have to be flawless, you have to be sinless, you have to be perfect. 
But what he is saying is that there must be within you a genuine desire, a genuine attempt, and a genuine intention of trying to live your life in such a way where you try to make Jesus the source of your life, the center of your life, your all in all. Now, does that mean that there's no room for failure? Of course not. Why do you think at the beginning of every service we do the corporate confession of sin? Why? It's so that you can begin service with a free conscience where you can confess your sins and you can claim the promise that God makes to us that every time we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So when the latter part of the service occurs, that includes the partaking of the Lord's Supper, you don't have to worry about the danger attached to the Lord's Supper because you've already confessed, you've already acknowledged, and you've already depend upon, once again, God's mercy and grace to cover over your sins, thereby making the supper completely safe for you to partake. Now, with that in mind, when I ask this question to you, Christian, is Jesus the source of your life? Is he your all in all? And your honest response is, Pastor, I'm sorry he isn't, but I want him to be. Then I'm here to tell you right now, this supper, this Lord's Supper is specifically designed for you. It is intended for people like you. How so? Well, let me go to my final point to explain the dissatisfaction of the supper. In verse 29, Jesus says this, For I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is a very important verse because it tells us that this meal that Jesus is having with his disciples, it's an incomplete meal. And when I say it's incomplete, I'm saying it's not designed to satisfy the disciples. In fact, just the opposite. It's designed to dissatisfy them. What do I mean by that? Well, let me see if I can explain. Um, the Lord's Supper is essentially the new Passover meal for God's people today. It remembers, commemorates, and teaches us what Jesus did for us on the cross in the past. But here's the thing. The Lord's Supper is not simply a meal that causes us to look at the past. According to verse 29, it's also a meal to have us look to the future. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 29. He says that this meal I'm sharing with you guys, it's not our final meal together. Which is kind of weird because technically it was his final meal with his disciples before he died. But you see, what Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples and to us today is that there is still a final meal to be had with Jesus that has not yet occurred, okay? Evidenced by the fact that he says that there is another drink that I will have with you in the future. And in Luke's version of this same story, he says there's another meal I will eat with you in the future. So what this tells us is that the Lord's Supper is a meal that promises another future meal with Jesus, which therefore means that the Lord's Supper is not designed to satisfy our appetite. No, just the opposite. It's designed to increase our appetite. You see, in many ways, the Lord's Supper is like an appetizer. It is a foretaste of a more glorious, more greater meal to where when we remember that, when we recognize that, that practically strengthens our faith and strengthens our confidence that Jesus truly is the source of our life. He is our all and all. And to help flesh that out for you, let me kind of share a personal story of application. Uh, when Sarah and I were dating, we were long distance. And for those of you who've ever been in a long distance relationship, you know how very hard that is. And it was hard for us, but you know what? It got even more hard the moment we got engaged. 
because the more we committed to each other of spending the rest of our lives together, the more aware we were of how we were not yet together right then and there. And it was so hard. It was such killer to go through that kind of experience. And one particular moment of our engagement felt like it was the worst of all. And that was the day that Sarah had to sample the wedding cake. I still remember the phone call like it was yesterday. She's calling me from Boston. I'm living in Seattle. And she's speaking to me over the phone through a tear-filled voice saying how she wished I could be with her to partake of this wedding cake sampling because I couldn't. I was stuck in Seattle. I was working. I couldn't fly out to Boston with her to where she could partake. And it was just making her so miserable. And she was just expressing how depressed she was, how lonely she was because of something so meaningful couldn't be shared between us. And it was just killing me on the inside, which explains my utter shock that happened when I called her the next day after the wedding cake sampling because when I talked to her, her voice changed. Now, filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with life, and I was so perplexed and I asked her, honey, what changed? Why, why are you so much chippier? Why are you so much happier? What happened? You know what she told me? It was because of the wedding cake sampling which confused me even more because that was the very thing that made her so sorrowful, so depressed just a couple days before. But when she explained what actually happened, I understood and it completely blew me away. You see, when Sarah went to the wedding cake sampling and she took the bite of the wedding cake for our wedding, it didn't magnify my present absence in her life. Rather, it caused her mind to envision my future presence in her life as her soon-to-be husband. And because of that, right then and there, it gave her such a sense of joy that she could not experience before that moment. You see, Sarah knew that the next time she ate this wedding cake, I was going to be by her side as her husband forever. Okay, She knew there was a wedding coming for her, a wedding where she would not be alone, and therefore it gave her endurance, it gave her strength to endure through the current season of loneliness and sorrow that she was going through. And all of it was embodied concretely through just a simple sample of a wedding cake. And friends, that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is to us today. Take a listen to this quote from theologian uh, Peter Lightheart. Listen to what he says in regard to the Lord's Supper. He says this quote, The Lord's Supper points towards the goal of all creation and history, the ultimate wedding feast, and if faithfully celebrated, brings that goal nearer to full realization. The Lord's Supper teaches us that our present experience of God's presence and blessing is incomplete. We have tasted that the Lord is good, sampled a bit of the heavenly gift. We have entered into the sanctuary, but we are not yet filled. Like eating popcorn, the supper just makes us want more. The taste makes us long all the more for the consummation of the promise when we shall see God face to face, known even as we are known, and sit with him at his table in the eternal kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows how hard it is to live in this world. He knows that you and I go through circumstances and situations that make us discouraged, that make us depressed, and as a result, make us so prone to look to money, to look to sex, to look to career, to look to family as the source of our life instead of Jesus. And it's because of that Jesus says, if you want to make sure that doesn't happen, if you would want to make sure that you don't indulge in cheap meals that end up making you into lukewarm people, you need to remember what the Lord's Supper is pointing to. You need to remember the wedding feast coming for you, where your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is going to come for his bride, you, his church. 
and you are going to be together with him celebrating for all eternity where all of the setbacks, all the sufferings, all the sorrows that you're going through now are going to be completely absent forever. You see? This is why those of you who are struggling with lukewarm tendencies, you need to partake in the supper. You need to make sure that every time it's available, you are indulging in the Lord's Supper. Because it's specifically designed for people like you. People who are struggling in their lukewarmness. And notice I said struggling. Look, if you're not struggling with lukewarmness, then of course you shouldn't partake of the table because that means you're indulging in your, in your lukewarmness. But if you are struggling your lukewarmness, which means you're genuinely attempting to try and live a Christ-honoring life where Jesus is your all in all, if you're someone who believes but you need help with your unbelief, that is why Jesus gave us this supper. Because he wants you to be strengthened, to be reminded of the hope that you have in the Lord's Supper, every time you partake of it, you have hope there is a wedding coming for you where you will have joy to the full and you will be free from all the sorrows and all the setbacks that tempt you to be lukewarm in the first place. This is why the Supper must be practiced all the time. Do you get that in Seattle? If you do, then this is what I want to challenge you with. Please stay hungry. Stay hungry. As you live in this long-distance world, okay, do not settle for lukewarm meals that will ruin your appetite, that will essentially cause you to miss out on the most important meal that you will ever have because it will be with the most important person of all. Make sure that you do not compromise by giving in to false things that do not serve as appropriate sources of life, but instead, Make room in your heart and keep it empty so that the true meal that is to come will fill you and fulfill you that no other cheap imitation can. Trust in Jesus as the source of your life and strengthen that faith by faithfully partaking in the supper. That is the hope that we are to have and that is why we are to partake in the supper. Are you going to do that in Seattle? Will we do that? Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you will be with all of us as a church family as we go through things in life that just seem to make us feel so hungry to the point of starvation where we seem so desperate just to devour anything. Lord, help us to not compromise and endanger our hunger by poisoning ourselves with cheap imitation that leave us nothing but satisfying but instead leaves us in a lukewarm state. Father, we pray that instead we would be empowered to stay hungry and to remember the hope that we have of the coming supper to where we would truly not simply eat to live, but live to eat the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great feast that is to come when you call your people back to yourself and we are reunited to you face to face the way you intended. God, would you help us to do that now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.